Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. to invite you to find a Bible and to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're coming back to this terrible story, the story of David and Bathsheba, page 262, 262 in the Black Bibles or 309 in the large print versions. And it's uh, my, my error in the passage description. We're going to read from verse 5 rather than verse 14, verse 5, down to the end of the chapter. You will remember we looked at the beginning last week, David seeing and taking, sending for and taking Bathsheba, a great disaster, and today a terrible deceit. And the woman conceived, verse 5, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his own house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I? Then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? 
Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? This is a famous instance in the past in Israelite history. Everybody knows you don't get too close to the wall. Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to the king, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. Cheer up, Joab, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your eyes see throughout all the earth, and so in these moments together, we are before you and with with you, and we are in your hand, and so speak, we pray, show us ourselves afresh, but more than this, show us your Son, our Savior, in all his risen glory, in all his grace and power. Hear us, we ask, in His precious name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever said to yourself, sitting perhaps at home, watching the news, reading the paper, have you ever heard yourself saying out loud or to somebody beside you, well, 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 what is the world coming to? Goodness me, I despair. This is a new low Have you ever said things like that? I guess they become increasingly the preserve of older people, don't they? The older you get, the more you see. Things happen, people do things, and we find ourselves completely shocked, appalled even at what we're witnessing. Here's a question for us. Have you ever said those things about yourself? Well, 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 what am I coming to? What have I come to? Oh, I despair. This is a new low, even for me. I think those of us who have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ a long time, oh, we have often said things like that, haven't we? Surely we have. What did the Apostle Paul say? Oh, wretched, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Brothers and sisters, if you have never looked in the mirror and said that, not about other people, not about the person down the road who's wronged you or or the family member who's hurt you or the, the colleague who's betrayed you, 
but said it about yourself, then you don't know who you're looking at in the mirror, right? We, we need to be honest. This chapter that we're studying together, th- this chapter is horrendous. It's horrifying. We're, go- we're going to see it together. So, let me remind you of Alistair Begg's powerful question from last week. Remember, he said this, is it really possible that God's purpose in history can be set forward with this man, this king, King David, now so unlike the Lord Jesus and so like us? The answer is yes. Yes, it can. Yes, always yes. Now, here you say back to me, really? Really, David? But with this? Verses 1 to 5 were bad, yes, but with this, the rest of the chapter, I want to say to you this morning, friends, yes, a thousand times yes, in a world of disasters, you and I this morning are in the presence of a God of reversals, a God who takes what is broken and who can mend it, who can take what is dirty and wash it clean, a God, you remember I said last week, who takes what has been cast aside and shameful and despicable and is able to bring that person inside, giving them pride of place in His family. I want to say to you this morning as clearly and as happily and as joyfully as I can to you today the grace of the Lord Jesus is more spectacular than David's spectacular sin. And the sin really is spectacular. Shall we look at it together here, chapter 11? This is a pointless sermon this morning, and I don't mean by that there's no point to it. It's a sermon without points. I hope you'll agree with that at least by the end. And the reason it doesn't have points this morning is because really this is just a sermon, a passage about deceit, isn't it? That's the one big thing that is running all the way through. It's so obvious as we read it. Verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Everything that follows is about covering up what has just happened. It's all about a cover-up, the deceit of taking a woman in adultery. That's what adultery always is, isn't it? A deceit. Couples in affairs keep the sex secret, but couples in marriages keep the sex private. There's a difference, a beautiful difference. On a wedding day, a couple stand in front of witnesses, and they make a public promise to have private sex, not secret sex. It's actually part of the whole point of the marriage, isn't it? To publicly promise to sleep together all the time. Have you ever thought about that? I want to suggest to you, friends, that sex is so powerful. Sex is such an incredible force for good or for evil, it is so powerful that that is why society needs people to publicly promise what they will do with sex. I promise that sex will be with you and with you alone 
and no one but you, and no one but you and me will ever be part of it. That's what you heard at the last wedding you were at. Listen for it, the next wedding you go to. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, when people say that marriage is outdated or kills all the fun and ruins sex. No, no. A wedding is a public celebration of the beauty of something private, publicly celebrated. But an affair takes what is meant to be private and turns it into something secret. Secret sex is always deceitful sex. And here, verse 5, the problem is that something ruins the secret, a baby. A baby, a baby, if it's not wanted, is a problem, isn't it? It's a problem that only deceit or death can fix. Babies are awkward, aren't they? They kind of stick out. They show what's happened. So, what is to be done here? Deceit, a terrible deceit. I want you just to imagine, if, if it's possible for a moment, I want you to imagine that you do not know the story of David and Bathsheba. Imagine that this morning you are hearing it here for the very first time. Imagine you read verse 5. One man's wife is pregnant with another man's child. So, how will the offending man respond? Remember last week I said that sin, sin always, always comes with these crossroads moments, points where as you're proceeding down the road, you get a chance to stop and choose which next direction to go in. We, we, we have these kind of handbrake moments, if you like, where, where we've learned that big sin happens in small steps, and God gives us these handbrake opportunities where we, we get in His grace the opportunity to pull the lever and to stop and to do an about turn and to go in the opposite direction. Well, look at this. Imagine, imagine you're a blank slate, and this is a new story to you, okay? Look at verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David, what? Imagine this is the first time if we are first-time readers, couldn't this have been when Uriah came to him, David the king fell on his face before Uriah and said, I have sinned. Forgive me. I have sinned grievously. I have done wrong. Isn't that right? It's possible. He could have done that. We, we know the story, so we know what does happen. It's a famous story. We know it so well, we assume it is all that could have happened, but it is not all that could have happened. There is nothing inevitable about verse 7. Yes, something terrible has transpired, but David has the power and the rights to go no further. But what does he do? He makes it worse. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Isn't there something really awful about that? He's feigning interest in the war. Yes, he's the king. Yes, of course, he probably does want to know if his side is winning. It's his war, his army. He's got a right to know all these things. And yet we know he is not really interested in those things, is he? That is not why Uriah is there. 
No, this is manipulative small, small talk. Here is Uriah in the king's presence under false pretenses. Here he is to give a battle update, but actually it's because David wants him home in bed with his wife. Now, I think we're meant to see here how far the king has fallen already. Before he's done anything with Uriah, those opening words, imagine fighting for King David in Rabbah. Imagine bleeding for King David against the Ammonites, and actually David is now only interested in using your fighting as a cover for his sin. Friends, do you know what's playing out here? Do you know what's beginning to come to the surface? It is the delusion, isn't it, that our sin can be contained. It's the deception that we can put a lid on it, seal it up, close it up in a box, and tuck it away in a dark corner. It's a delusion that if you vandalize the garden, somehow you can cover up the scorched earth, and maybe the gardener won't notice. Is it really possible that God's purpose in history can be set forward with this man, now so unlike the Lord Jesus and so like us? Isn't David like you? I can tell you, friends, he's like me. Oh, he's so like me. Do you know why he's like me? Because I am like my first parents, Adam and Eve. They ruin the world. And what do they do when God comes looking? God comes to them. They run. They run and hide. What could they have done? fallen on their faces before Him, Lord God of heaven and earth, we have sinned against You. Forgive us. Think about every experience you've ever had of getting something badly wrong. I don't know, this morning, yesterday, last week. Think about the experience of getting something wrong. Why is it that our human instinct is to reach for a shovel and to dig a deeper hole? rather than to simply say three words, I am sorry. Please forgive me. I was wrong. I've been traveling these last couple of days. I think I was, I've been asked about 10 times uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a plane, in a hotel ordering food. I think I've been asked about 10 times, anything you're allergic to, sir? Yes, I'm allergic to light. I'm allergic to bearing my soul in all its ugliness to others and to God. It's why we wear clothes, isn't it? It's why we're all clothed here this morning. It's a permanent symbol on our bodies physically of what we're all doing spiritually. We cover up our shame. Remember the words of John's gospel, people loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. If you do evil things, you need to hide them in the darkness. And because David is first deceived into thinking that he can hide, conceal his sin, because he is first self-deceived, he then begins to try and deceive Uriah. Verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. It's very possible that this is a euphemism. Feet in the Bible is often used as a euphemism for sexual organs. This is David saying, supper, shower, and sex, Uriah. 
Uriah went out of the king's house, and look, there followed him a present from the king. It's so awful, isn't it? I mean, what's the present that you send? Wine and cheese, bath salts for the wife, a scented candle? It is crass manipulation, isn't it? All calculated at the end of the day to deceive a man into thinking that he will have grounds for believing that the baby in his wife's womb is his. And it does not work. David's plan does not work, friends. Ask yourself, tell me, how has it gone covering up sin for you? How does it, how does it go? Does it lead to a good night's sleep, to a clear conscience? It never works, doesn't it? And here it never works because David comes up against a man, verse 11, he comes up against a man with a conscience. Uriah did not go down to his house. His servants, the messengers, tell, tell Uriah. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, how could I do this? The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? See, David has had his conscience seared long ago, somewhere, somehow, but Uriah's compass bearings are true for his conscience, aren't they? They are fully intact. His conscience is set due north to where the ark of the Lord is, the ark of the covenant. What is inside that gold-layered box? The Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Uriah is saying to to his king, how can I lie warm beside my wife? I wonder if David winces when he hears that phrase, the ark of the Lord. How can I lie with her when the very holy commandments of God are only in temporary accommodation and everything about our life is hard right now? Everyone is making war and you want me to make love? No, I cannot do it, sire. I won't do it. It's interesting, you know, commentators spill a lot of ink on whether Uriah has got wind of what is really going on here. Some people think he's oblivious. Other people think with all these court messengers coming and going, Uriah will have known exactly what's happened, and he is skillfully letting David stew. Whatever is true there, David thinks he's in control of everything, but he is not, is he? Plan A, go home, Uriah, doesn't work. Plan B, get drunk, Uriah, and then go home. That doesn't work, verse 13. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Somebody has said, you know, Uriah drunk is, is better than David sober. Wow. Uriah drunk is better than David sober. God's king, God's chosen man. Remember, friends, what makes this bad is not just the planned deceit and the planned death, but that it is David doing it, a sober king, worse than a drunk soldier. Oh, we're meant to see the terrible, degrading effects of our sin, aren't we? Uriah is the one who has lost control of his senses, 
due to alcohol, and yet he is more of a man than the king who is descending into such degradation. Sin always makes us, and our deceit always makes us so much less than we are and should be, doesn't it? Wouldn't you agree? It's as if here the king and the soldier are almost trading places. Don't we look at a man like Uriah this morning with wonder and awe and think, I would fight for this man. I would line up behind you and go into battle with you. And we look at King David with pity. Which man do you want to be like? Who seems the hero here? And yet, friends, in it all, there is here verse 14, I think the most shocking part of the whole story. I don't think I'd ever really noticed this before. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Job and sent it by the hand of Uriah. What is in the letter? Uriah's death warrant. Isn't it astonishing? God's king makes the man he now intends to kill carry his own death warrant back to the battle. How awful, how, how cold, how terrible. But do you, do you know why it's so bad? Isn't it that David has to rely on Uriah's integrity to get the message to Joab? Isn't that, what it, isn't, that, isn't that what makes it so bad? David looks at Uriah and says, I can trust this man to carry his own death warrant back to Joab. It's awful. And so it happens, verse 17. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Brothers and sisters, see here displayed for us in, in awful, glorious technicolor, see here displayed the deceptions of the human heart, the deceptions that belong. This is the point of the chapter, the deceptions that belong to the very best of us to the greatest of men and women that God has ever given us. The point of this story is not for you and I to tut-tut at David and to look down on him, but rather as we look up to him as king and say, if you could do that, how on earth am I not capable of doing this? Dale Ralph Davis says, King David is the one who puts Mephibosheth at his table and who puts Uriah in his grave. Welcome to Thugsville. Oh, the kingdom is safe only in the hands of King Jesus, only in His hands. I hope you know that this morning. Do you know that? Do you know yourself? I want to ask you today, do you know yourself? The kingdom is not safe with you. It is not safe with me. Look at the steps of deception here as the whole story has unfolded right back in the very beginning. The king on his rooftop, I deserve some time off from my responsibilities. There's the first misstep. He sees and he is deceived that he has a right to take what he sees. Here's the deceit that is at the heart of it all. We regard, we regard certain behaviors as of little consequence, don't we? 
We regard certain behaviors as of little consequence. As things unfold, we simply give our wrongdoings a score out of one to ten, and we give them the wrong score. On a scale of one to ten, where one is mild and ten is, well, let's call it murder. We do things and we say, well, I think it's probably a two or a three. Oh, it's only a three. Listen to John Woodhouse. As one thing leads to another, we find it easy to underestimate our wrongdoing. David looked at the beautiful naked woman. What harm can there be in a look? He made inquiries about her. What harm can there be in knowing who she is? He sent for her. Why not meet her? He had sex with her. Her husband was away. No one need to know what harm has been done. Inconveniently, she fell pregnant. The easiest thing for all concerned would be to arrange things so that everybody, including her husband, would think the child was his. The deception would hurt nobody and save a lot of trouble. But the most chilling, friends, the most awful deception comes at the end of this chapter, doesn't it? Did you pick it up at the end? David arranges Uriah's murder, and then he counsels Joab to not regard murder as so bad. So he does something evil, he implicates others in it, and then he puts his arm around Joab's shoulder in a text message. Come now, Joab, my friend. This is war. We're fighting men, you and me. War is a man's game. Be a man, Joab. Look at verse 25. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. Do you know what that is literally? It is, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Isn't that always, always the end game of sin? We might get there in incremental steps. It might take us years to get there, but we always get there in the end. We call what is sin, not sin. We call what is evil, not evil. We take what God has called evil and we overturn the decision and give it back to Him the opposite. We call evil, not evil. God's king has the audacity to murder one of God's own people and to call it not evil. The shepherd kills a sheep and says, well, it's a big bad world. Come now, Joab, cheer up. That's why verse 27, friends, right at the end is so powerful. Do you notice how it matches in our Bibles? Verse 27, right at the end, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's the same wording in verse 25 to Joab. Do not let this matter displease you. It matches in our Bibles, and it matches literally. What do you think it is literally in verse 27? The thing that David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. Isn't that astonishing? Do not let this be evil in your eyes, Joab. The thing that David had done was evil in God's eyes. I wonder if you've noticed all through this chapter, the Lord is silent, isn't He? He says nothing. 
And then right at the end, we are told that when David was seeing on the rooftop, when David's eyes were working, the Lord's eyes were working. When David was watching her, the Lord was watching him. Somebody says the Lord, somebody has said the Lord might be silent, but he is not sightless. David may have Bathsheba's flesh, he may have Uriah's blood, but he will have to face the Lord's eyes. Just think for a moment about shame. What does shame do? Shame makes you avert your eyes, doesn't it? It makes you look down, you, you hang your head. When you're ashamed of something, you cannot look people in the eyes. Second Samuel chapter 11 says, we will have to face the Lord's eyes. We cannot hide. How is it possible to hide what we do from the eyes of the Lord who sees? Psalm 11, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyes see. I want to say to us this morning, to all of us, young and old, men and women, whether I know you well or hardly know you at all, I want to say to us together that if today you are somewhere down this path from verse 3, somewhere down this road from verse 3, if you are seeing And maybe if you've moved further down the path, you've moved from seeing to sending, to inquiring. Or if you're sitting here today much further down the road, knowing that you are playing a dangerous game with cover-up in your marriage, or if you're not married, in some other area of life, some other area of relationships, dishonesty in work with money, doesn't this chapter want us to take on board that the Lord sees. Amazing, isn't it, traveling? You, you, you wouldn't, for fear of, I don't know what the punishment would be, you would never try to smuggle 200 millimeters of liquid onto a plane, would you? So, why do we think God in heaven from His throne doesn't see But I want to say to his friends, this passage is not just here to warn us this morning. It is a warning. But it's more than that. Is it really possible that God's purpose in history can be set forward with this man, now so unlike the Lord Jesus and so like us? Yes, a thousand times yes. For what does the Lord Jesus do to the shamed and the shameful? What does Jesus do to people who do this? Do you remember Luke's gospel, chapter 18, the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple? The facts, Jesus tells a story, two men go to worship, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee, friends, is there because he wants to read out his CV to God can't wait to get there and tell God everything that He has not done and that He has done. He takes His resume to church. Can you see it, God? He says to him, here's all the bad I have not done. You remember what Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
He could not lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, on me, a sinner. The Pharisee thinks God can't see, so I'm going to help him out. The tax collector says, the greatest problem I have on earth is that God sees, that God knows. I know you see, he says, and so I cannot even look at you. I just need your mercy. Lord, please, that's what I need. Friend, can you see how God's purpose is being set forth in David? What is God saying to you today with David? Isn't He saying, look at King Jesus. Look at Him. God's purpose with this King, 2 Samuel 11 King, is to show us the kingdom is only safe in Jesus' hands. That's the point. Some of you will remember these words from Glenn Scrivener, his beautiful poem, It's Dark in the Bible when Christmas is spoken. It's always a bolt from the blue for the broken. In the valley of the shadows, the land of the dead, it's no place in the inn, so he stoops to the shed. He's born to the shameful. He bends to the weak. He becomes the lowly, the God who can't speak. And yet, what a word. This Savior who comes, our dismal, abysmal depths He plums, through crib and then cross, to compass our life, to carry and conquer our brother in strife. He became what we are, our failures He shouldered, to bring us to His life forever enfolded. He took on our frailties, He took on all comers, to turn all our winters to glorious summers. Brothers and sisters, come close to King Jesus today. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, come to Him. I want to invite you to come, not just this morning to hear Him. Come this evening, wonder of wonders, to be fed by Him. For not only does He give His life to death, He gives His death to us in bread and wine. That is how close we can be to Him. Oh, the extent of His grace and mercy, more wonderful than we can ever imagine. As He takes the lowly and says, lift up your head and come and eat, come and drink. Amen.